This is Daniel Fagella, and you're listening to the AI and Business Podcast. There's some times where we want to run our compute in the data warehouse, and there's other times when it makes sense for us to run our compute at the edge. Uh, running inference at the edge, being able to process information with devices that don't have to run through some kind of a central database can be advantageous, but it's also a bit of an abstract concept, sort of a new and nascent world, a very exciting world, but one that often is more ideas than it is hard knowledge of use cases. But today, being as this is our Tuesday use case episode here on the AI and Business Podcast, we're going to be getting into use cases. We speak this week with Jeffrey Tate, who's the CEO and founder of Flex Logics. Flex Logics is a hardware company that has developed a, an AI chip. They're also going to be one of the speakers at Kisako Research's Edge AI Summit, which is coming up November 18th through the 20th. Uh, it's going to be a virtual summit. Kisako Research is the sponsor of this episode. In this episode, Jeffrey goes into some of the use cases he's seeing for edge compute across industries. So if you're interested in computer vision, you're interested in heavy industry retail, we touch on a little bit of everything and also talk about some broad applications that I think will be useful in, in almost any sector. So when it comes to where AI can be leveraged at the edge in the big picture and what those big broad categories of capability are that we might be able to enable in our own businesses. Jeffrey does a good job of opening it up. So without further ado, we're going to fly into this episode. This is Jeffrey Tate with FlexLogix here on the AI and Business Podcast. So Jeffrey, uh, we're going to be getting into inference at the edge when it comes to AI hardware. And you've done a lot of digging in terms of where this is making an impact in different industries, which I know use cases is a big part of what we do here. So I want to dive in. But before we do, can you get us up to snuff the word inference? We've covered it on the show before. We've got a lot of business listeners. When you have people think about you know, inference and what's happening on hardware, how do you like to explain that to non-technical people? Yeah, well, we all do inference. The only good thing about getting older and I guess this is audio, they can't see my gray hair, is that I've got a bigger database of experiences. So there's times, you know, that you talk to somebody and that person reminds you of somebody else. In fact, sometimes you can almost start to predict what that person's behavior is going to be like. You know, that's inference. You're using your pattern matching of your past experience to reach a conclusion about this experience to help you do a better job. So that is basically what these computer chips are doing. Now, computers don't have intelligence like we have. This is all a function of a whole bunch of math, but the basic idea is they're using inferential models in order to reach conclusions about, is this object a person? Is this object a car? Because if it's a, a person, you want to make sure that you don't hit it if you're driving. You don't want to hit the cars either, et cetera. Got it. Okay. So that's inference at a conceptual level. Obviously, this makes its way down to what's happening on hardware in different ways and, and in different um, industries. We think about sort of use cases. I know for your work in developing uh, an AI chip, you've had to get a sense of, hey, in, in different pockets of different industries, where is inference happening at the edge? Where are we actually seeing people already paying for compute to solve specific kinds of problems or impact certain workflows? What are some of those? You know, you can go through whatever industry order you like, but I think having a bit of a display here would be a lot of fun for listeners. Yeah. Well, a lot of them uh, work around object detection and recognition, and we're lucky there because there's an open source model called YOLO V3, which does an excellent job and runs well on our chip and some other chips. And people are actually using that in real world applications today. You can train this model to recognize different kinds of objects. If if you're a robot in a distribution center for Amazon, and I'm just 
picking their name because they're the biggest company doing that stuff. You need to recognize certain objects like people because you, as a robot, don't want to hit those people. You want to recognize boxes because as a robot, you need to pick up those boxes. You want to recognize racks because as a robot, you've got to take stuff and put it on the rack, conveyor belts, etc. If you're flying an airplane, you want to recognize different kinds of objects. So you train this model to recognize the objects that matter to you. And then at 30 frames per second, at whatever resolution you have, and more resolution means more accuracy, just like humans, we can tell who somebody is from a big, sharp picture better than a fuzzy little picture. You now can track objects in real time. So you can see people walking across the store floor. You can see uh, objects moving down the assembly line. You can tell how many cookies there are in an open box before it gets sealed, etc. So people can do very important tasks and very mundane tasks, all of which, you know, make them money. Maybe you're automating inspection processes. Maybe you can do inspection at much faster rates than humans could. You can drive a car so you don't need a driver like Uber and and Lyft want to do someday, Mm. etc. So that whole field of object detection recognition is behind robots, industrial inspection, autonomous vehicles, a lot of airplane applications. Got it. And that's one big sector that we see adopting inference in edge systems today. And you gave us some good subcategories there as well. I'd love to, to get back into some of those subcategories, including the inspection one, which I think people think of less frequently. Everybody can think of autonomous vehicles, but inspection, you know, we happen to know from the vendor ecosystem, there is a rife set of potential disruptors in, in terms of how do we check and approve and seal and move stuff forward in, in the the process or ship things properly, et cetera. So there's there's a lot of great things to talk about there. But that was one part of the ballgame, you know, sort of object detection, recognition. I, I know that there's more than that. So you've given us a good slice and some sub-slices, which we might be able to touch on again. What else are you seeing out there? Yeah. Well, we see customers who've developed their own models and their neural network models. We don't have a perfect idea of what they do, but they're doing things like improving the quality of images. Many of these sensors, it will pick up grainy images. If you've ever seen an ultrasound image, it can be hard for a human to interpret. Even doctors take years to learn how to read them well. So they're improving image quality so they can make better decisions and help the human beings you know, make clearer decisions. They're using neural network models to uh, accelerate gene sequencing. They're using neural network models you know, for making better medical decisions. So there's a wide range of applications that we see. But in those cases, the customers are developing their own models, and that takes time. Yeah, uh, okay. As opposed to you're saying some of the other use cases might be pre-trained. In other words, if we're, if we're doing you know, a security camera, we might just be able to train it on what a vehicle and what a human looks like. If you're interested in object detection and recognition, we can give you the YOLO V3 model. And it's, it's fairly easy to learn how to train the model to recognize the class of images that you care about for your application. So you can be up and running in a matter of days detecting and recognizing objects, and you don't have to write the neural network model yourself. Got it. And, and that's for, again, that's for some specific uh, kinds of use cases where we might not need proprietary data. Right. It's, it's actually the dominant use case we see right now. Wouldn't surprise me. Wouldn't surprise me at all. Again, autonomous vehicles, it's like, okay, unless unless we start uh, driving on, you know, go-kart tracks, uh, we're probably going to see things pretty similar to the streets we've seen elsewhere in America or Europe or wherever these models have been trained, so long as we're prepared for weather, which I presume, you know, some of them are, 
So you mentioned in a previous interview also things like infrared and, and LIDAR. I immediately just think about, okay, either military applications or aircraft applications or for LIDAR, you know, autonomous vehicles as well. But there, there's all those other types of sensors. Is it as bounded as I just said? You know, immediately come to mind was automotive and then, yeah. you know, defense and, and aerospace. Well, but uh, where else? You mentioned, you, you mentioned, you know, weather. Yes. So how do you drive when there's terrible rain? Or I lived in Texas for a while. There's times where the rain was so heavy, it, it just looked like somebody's pouring water over your windshield. Wild. <laughs> you have to basically pull over. But what if you have LIDAR? What if you have radar? If you have some other sensors that are not blocked by water vapor, you have a chance of continuing to drive. If you've got snow on the road, cars will have a very hard time with just vision because you're missing the markers. Where's the, where's the lane markers? Where's the edge of the road markers? You know, I grew up in Canada, so there's times when you're driving where it's actually hard to tell where the road is. Yeah. Uh, but yeah. if you've got things like radar and LIDAR, LIDAR, they can penetrate below the surface and give you a better chance of being able to continue to go forward. So a lot of people that are interested in, especially applications where it's critical, like when you're driving a car, things are far more critical. Human lives are at stake. Of if course, you're in an yeah. airplane, you're automating it. Human lives can be at stake. So in that case, they'll spend more money for sensors that might not make sense in an industrial application and try to get something that can supplement the vision to take over when conditions get bad. Yeah. Now, and again, for vehicles of all kinds, uh, the man in the street with an autonomous Tesla to uh, some military application, okay, that, that makes sense for me. I presume on some level, you know, an, 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 uh, an aircraft is not just using their windshield, they're using other technologies too. Are you seeing LiDAR and whatnot used outside of those applications, or is it mostly in those that we've just articulated? Uh, LiDAR we've seen with autonomous vehicles primarily. Prim yeah, yeah, I would uh, presume. LiDAR is, is still a relatively expensive sensor. You can, you can buy a camera sensor for a small amount of money, Yep. but a LiDAR sensor is hundreds of dollars. So, you know, 10 times the cost, at least, of a vision sensor. So it's it's got to be pretty important to want to deploy it, which will mean that it's got to be in some mission-critical application at this time. Okay, got it. Yeah, so... Um, now, they expect with volumes, they'll bring down costs, and then maybe it can show up in a lot of other applications. Okay, cool. Yeah, it, that was my gut instinct was we're talking aerospace and defense, and we're talking autonomous vehicles for these, you know, infrared, yeah. et cetera, et cetera, kind of applications. I'd love to touch briefly on inspection before we go. Many people have already considered, you know, detecting theft at a checkout or detecting a person on a security camera. But inspection's interesting because it's so tailored. You know, you had talked about these pre-built models where, hey, we can just take you live and we can tell you how many Jeeps that are the color blue, you know, drive in front of your darn store or something like that. You know, that, that's already a solved problem. But, you know, if we're counting, you mentioned cookies in a box before we seal it, that's kind of interesting. Or, you know, we can imagine a million instances. Maybe we make uh, parts that involve pipes and we want to see if there's cracks or holes or, or you know, fissures in, in these pipes. Maybe we, you know, create products that, that need to be assembled in some particular way without maybe a certain kind of abrasion on some of the materials and we can detect some of those abrasions so a human don't have to look at these different things. These these appear to me to be very bespoke per business. Maybe there's some that are somewhat rote, but they, they, they do seem rather bespoke. What are some good examples of inspection to help people think through where that could fit into their business? The trouble with inspection these days is that humans are very good at detecting flaws, but the average manufacturing situation, the, the parts per million of failures is very low. 
So that means as a human, you're sitting there all day long, basically looking at perfect parts. So how long does it take you to zone out and miss the one part in a thousand or 10,000 that's got a problem? Yeah. It wouldn't take me very, it wouldn't take me very Oh yeah. Long. For me, I mean, it would be maybe <laughs> six of them. Uh, I'm not going to lie. So a robot, you know, or a vision that you don't need to move, you just have a camera, you know, Computers are very good at doing the same thing over and over and over again and saying, aha, this one's missing a screw. The left screw is not there. So you replace a job that nobody really wants to do uh, and nobody could really do it effectively eight hours a day, you know, with a machine that can do it far more effectively and lower cost. Got it. So the way that this might look, I would imagine is we set up our vision system, our camera point it in whatever angle and we make sure that whatever the piece or the part is, it's, it's positioned in such a way where we would hypothetically be able to see said error from one of these two or three camera angles we have set up. Yep. And then if it gets flagged, then maybe that item gets nudged off the conveyor belt and in front of a human, or maybe somebody just gets notified. Or I imagine the next step is, again, rather bespoke per workflow, but people basically just need to hardwire their cameras to be in the right spot to pick up on things and then determine what is the action if we see an error or a potential error. And then they have to, to have some kind of a dashboard or notification system for humans. Is that roughly on par? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And the cheap, if, if the camera that does the inspection is really expensive, now you need something to physically turn the device to look at all the sides, and yeah. the bottom even. If the camera is cheap, you can just put cameras on all four sides and not have to move anything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That that was that was sort of my thought there is that there might be some things where we don't know if it's going to come out with the underside exposed to this direction or this direction, but in some cases maybe we just have a camera array and kind of no matter how it's laid down, it's going to go over it in some way and we'll just be able to pick right. up on it. Cool. Right. So, yeah, inspection. And and for you it it sounds like inspection might be one of those use cases that we just want to tackle at the edge. If things are moving quickly through a manufacturing line, we don't want to pipe it back to the data center and have it come back to us later. We want to know right away if this broken part is about to go have more investment and pieces tacked on top of it, and we're going to sink more costs into it. So for you, that might be another edge example. Correct. Cool. Neat. So, all right. So we've drawn up some of the ecosystem of where inference is making its way into the edge for some of the, those of you who are tuned in. And certainly for me, this was fun to be able to think through in a different light. Uh, Jeff, I know that's all we have for time on this episode, but thank you again for being able to join us here. Hey, Dan. It's great being here. Thank you. So that's all for this episode of the AI and Business Podcast. If you've liked this use case episode and you're interested in more AI use cases, obviously you know that every Tuesday we're going to cover them here on the AI and Business Podcast. Uh, we also cover them in our AI and Financial Services Podcast, but we cover many more on Emerge.com. That's just E-M-E-R-J.com. In fact, we have over a thousand use cases you can browse already across various sectors. You can go to emerj.com, and up at the top right, there's a button for subscribe. You can enter your email address there. And not only will you receive all of our latest use cases that we do via audio, in other words, for this show, but you'll also be able to get all the latest ones that we write and produce, including demo videos of the companies that we feature and highlight. People really do like to make things visual, and our use case articles are pretty darn good at uh, making business cases digestible for business folks without a technical background. So if you like AI use cases, be sure to stay plugged in via email. Click that subscribe button up top right at emerge.com uh, and be sure you're on the newsletter and otherwise be sure to stay tuned here in the AI and business podcast. I'll catch you for Thursday's episode.